Welcome to The Mother Whelm. This is a podcast for mothers and parents to safely share the challenges and triumphs of motherhood, shed light on taboos, and celebrate everyday victories. I'm your host Bronwyn, and I'm here to talk to you about all things motherhood, the miraculous parts and the overwhelming parts, the ones that make you wonder how you got here, and those that make you realise you're exactly where you should be. This podcast is produced on Darug and Gundungara country, land that has been the home of mothering and storytelling for tens of thousands of years. We acknowledge and pay our respects to the Darug and Gundungara elders, past, present and emerging as the traditional custodians of this land. On today's episode, we are joined by my elder sister, Liesl, who shares with us her experience of being a working mother, going through a breakup shortly after the birth of her first son, and becoming a sole parent by choice. This episode was recorded across two weeks and four separate recording sessions. I believe this epitomizes the mother whelm, not only because we had to coordinate our schedules and consider the five children we have between us, not only because I lost at least 20 minutes of interview due to technical difficulties, but also because it was nearly impossible to find any uninterrupted time to edit. Like a duck swimming along serenely, I don't think you'll be able to sense all the frantic work that is going on below the surface due to some clever editing skills. But I want to be upfront with you all and acknowledge that this has definitely been a labour of love and stress, which I think is absolutely relevant when discussing motherhood and everything it involves. I think you'll really enjoy this one. It's a long one. So get comfy, get a cuppa and let's begin. Can you tell us who is in your family? There's three of us. I have two boys, Theo and Eamon, and they are four and one. Before you had children, what were your expectations of motherhood? I knew it was going to be very hard. I knew that the kind of mother I wanted to be was someone who was not entirely unselfish, but was largely unselfish. And so because I expected it to be hard and because I wanted to make sure I was able to give as much of myself to my kids as I could. It was something that I deliberately did a little bit later in life. So I tried to kind of live a bit first. Mm. So I think expectations, I didn't know exactly what kind of mother I was going to be. I knew, I knew who I wanted to be. I knew I wanted to be really focused on the kids. I wanted to, to be present for them. Um, not in a kind of like the kind of martyrdom type way, because I don't think that's good for anybody either expected it to be hard and time consuming but I don't think you can ever really know how hard and how time consuming or how much Mm. how busy you will be and so I think I probably uh, what I expected was accurate just not at the scale that it actually (laughs) is so I think I maybe like 20% I had a 20% read on, on the reality of it where do you think you got that idea that it's that it would be hard Some of it is societal expectations. You can't kind of look around and see everything that's expected of mothers and not think, you know, oh, that looks like a that looks like an easy (laughs) job. Super cushy. Yeah, super cushy. It takes twenty minutes a day. And I mean, our mum, it's not like she made it look hard, but I was aware all the time of how hard she was working, Mm. both in her job trying to make sure that she, you know, was going up the ladder and getting more money to, to kind of look after us are working really hard that way. But also, you know, I mean, Saturdays were cleaning days and mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I love her dearly, but she lost her mind. It was not a happy day. <laughs> no, it was not a happy day. 
because fair enough she's been working all week and then you know has to effectively work on Saturdays as well and to try and keep the house clean and stuff so I think so yeah some of it is society some of it was just you know looking at examples around me including our mum and some of it I think was just my own expectations of myself mm. I don't I don't expect to be perfect but I always want to be trying to do the very best I can and that means pushing myself, you know, almost all the time. Not to be perfect. I, I try not to, like, flagellate myself when I make mistakes or what I perceive as mistakes, but I think my, my own expectations definitely played in there a bit as mm. well. Or play in there a bit. It's not like it's done. <laughs> Never <laughs> He's done. four, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> he gets big now. He can make his own way in the world. He knows how to feed himself. <laughs> what was your journey to motherhood like it was a bit more involved and intentional I guess than I think it is for for some people when I started thinking that I'd like to or that it was time for me to be a a mother because you know that I was kind of ready I was in a relationship with someone who was no longer interested in having biological children himself I don't think it was kind of part of what he'd envisioned for his future but he understood that it was something that I wanted for myself and he was supportive of me seeking that and so we investigated a number of different paths but in the end we'd worked out a structure that we thought would work for us with him taking a kind of step parent type role to a child that would biologically be mine and I would seek a donor for the sperm. I decided to go down the donor route using IUI so not the super hardcore invasive IVF stuff it's kind of literally just choosing a donor and then putting the sperm <laughs> where it where it needs to go but yeah so it was it was very intentional it meant that I was having blood tests to track where my hormone levels were and then going in and and you know having an insemination day yeah so the journey was kind of started in February and then in November so choosing a donor or finding a doctor having all of the preliminary tests to make sure that what I wanted to do or that I could do the kind of the least invasive least medicalized still still medicalized but least medicalized procedure I had to do all of that sort of stuff and then had the insemination in November the first one didn't work that was in October so the second was in November and then I was pregnant from there but so it was very much kind of decision-based and planning mm. and, and very intentional, also, also medicalised, like I said. Yeah, so so that was the kind of the actual getting pregnant bit. In terms of readiness and stuff, I, I'm a, I think I'm a pretty practical person and so I waited until I was, like I said, kind of emotionally ready to, to be a bit more unselfish. So I think I, I was 32 when I fell pregnant with Theo and then 33 when he was born. So I felt like I was emotionally ready to to focus more on him. Um, I was financially ready um, by the time he was born, only just, only by like a month, but by the time he was born, um, we were living in the place, the house that we'd built. So yeah, so I, in terms of readiness, I kind of, I waited until I was emotionally, financially ready until I was in a house that I knew would last us um, theoretically forever although it's starting to feel a bit small now um, that there's two of them mm. but yeah so I don't tend to do a lot of things off the cuff I tend to be a bit of a planner so it the complete was the um, opposite of me yeah <laughs> shocking information <laughs> yeah how what what 
kind of played a part in how you chose the donor? What considerations did you have? Um, so I didn't know what parameters to have in mind when I went in to look through them. And in the end, I ended up choosing the very first one I looked at, which just happened <laughs> to be the first one that I, I liked, the first mm. person that I liked as well. What sealed it in the end, because I went through California Cryobank and there are a lot more options there than there were through the local Sydney based ones um, through my through the company that I was going with to do the actual all the procedures and everything my, that my doctor was with anyway so I went through California cryobank so there were quite there was like 50 different donors that I could choose from and there was a huge amount of information available for, for each most of all of them had childhood photos most of them had adult photos there was like conversations where you could hear their voice there's these personal essays the person that I chose his personal essay he was training to be a nurse and his personal essay was about a time that, that previous summer before he'd come to, to write the essay and sign up to be a donor. He'd worked at a summer camp for adults with learning disabilities and he talked about this adult man who had learning disabilities and who was really nervous or shy or some, something about being there and he was not having a good time at this, at this camp. It was like a weekend thing. And so this young man, the donor, spent the whole weekend singing Disney songs mm. to him to try and make sure that he felt comfortable and was enjoying himself and stuff. And he, in the essay, he said he had no voice by the end of the weekend because <laughs> he was just singing to this guy constantly. But that he was really happy because he knew that the the camper or this, you know, this man had ended up having a really lovely time. Mm. And I just thought, look, I, you know, I don't know how much of those sorts of traits are inherited but if they are that kind of willingness to extend care and love to someone else even to someone you don't know and who isn't necessarily a kind of an easy object mm. of love if that is something that can be inherited that's something that I want for my kids I mm. think that's a really I think kindness is probably the most important trait that you can have someone mm. around the person among people <laughs> And given that your conception of your children was so intentional, do you think that has had an impact on how you parent? Less so than I thought it would be. Like I said, I'm a, I'm a planner. So I think I thought that I was going to be more structured, more focused on a plan than I am. And actually what's happened is I tend to be a bit of a magpie in terms of be, things that are influencing my parenting. Um, so I take a little bit from a whole bunch of different modes and ways mm. of of doing things and but a lot of it really is gut instinct and following my kids lead mm. I found I have the most success when I kind of follow their cues and look at what they I mean particularly with Theo Amon's obviously still really little but I moved him out of my room when I noticed that me getting into bed was starting to wake him up so mm. it was about well he's ready to be out of the room when we were doing introducing solids I moved from purees to solids when he started wanting to grab the spoon off me mm. and started wanting food off my plate and clearly getting sick of it <laughs> with being too easy or something yeah so I think it's influenced them I guess in that I'm we're all very grateful for our children obviously but I'm aware that I have them because I live in a society where that's possible I have enough money that this was that it was something that I could pursue there's a, for a lot of people it just simply wouldn't be affordable mm. to have kids the way I could have them so I it, it definitely I think throws into awareness that sometimes it's very easy to get pregnant it was easy for me to fall pregnant but the lead up was quite long and there were a lot of mm. steps to go through and a lot of tests that needed to be done it was more at stake kind yeah. of because you had 
a limitation on how many chances. Yeah. So I, I initially purchased three vials mm. and they, they were really expensive. Um, you know, I, I earn decent money, but I'm not like rolling in it or anything. Mm. So yeah, it's not, it wasn't this kind of infinite resource. There's always too much of it until there's not enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, when you're not looking for it, yeah, it's everywhere. Exactly, exactly. I didn't need it earlier. I couldn't get away from the stuff. Um, but yeah, so I knew that I only had a few a few chances. So it does feel, I mean, all children in their own way are miracles. But for, for me with my boys, I just, it feels particularly miraculous. So I guess mm. that plays into my parenting of them. Like I, I mean, I think we all do, but I feel lucky, incredibly lucky every day that I, I have my two because it could so easily not have happened that mm. way. And both of the births I, I would describe as really positive experiences, although they were quite different. Um, with my first baby, um, I just, you know, you don't know how your body's going to react. Um, you've never done it before. Your body's never done it before. Your baby's obviously never done it before. And so I was a bit, not risk averse, but um, wanting to go down the kind of the traditional hospital route. And I live pretty much, not quite, but pretty much halfway between two hospitals. One's a kind of major not city hospital, but a, a pretty big central hospital for a, a large region. And the other one is a smaller regional hospital. And the first one's on a major road and the second one's kind of up the mountains, not in the bush, but it's a, it's a much um, nicer location than the major regional hospital. So I decided to, to go up the mountains to the smaller hospital. The midwifery group there, they didn't have the kind of midwifery group practice one-to-one that you get in some places, but because the hospital was small, the midwifery team was small, um, I think about, I don't know, six or eight people or something. And so I met with pretty much all of them before I presented mm. to birth. So I had midwifery appointments at the hospital throughout the pregnancy. I did have a couple of appointments with an obstetrician at the hospital. And I have to say those were my least positive experiences mm. throughout the pregnancy. I work in a university and so I'm, and I have a, a background in research myself. And so I'm very focused on evidence and what the evidence tells us about safety. And I don't just mean physical, psychological safety, um, emotional safety. And so I went to, I did a lot of research myself and I don't mean that like, you know, in the way it's kind of bandied about now, I mean, actually using my research training, using my access to universities and therefore the best evidence that we have available that's being printed in the journal articles, which sadly are often behind a paywall. And I have to say, I've worked with some of the best midwifery researchers in the country at the, the two universities that I've worked at in the last few years. And so I looked at what was there and I knew that the best results in the hospital system come from women who are matched with midwives, who have that kind of one-to-one -one continuity of care. I couldn't access that. I couldn't afford at the time to have a private midwife. And I also wasn't sure how my body would react. And so I, I knew that a home birth probably wasn't for me for the first time. But so I knew that, that when you see an obstetrician, they're going to want to revert to their training, mm. which is much more intervention-based. And the bedside manner of the obstetrician that I dealt with at the, at the hospital was not really what you'd want. It's certainly not what you usually get from midwives. They mm. tend to be, it's a blanket statement, and it's not true of all, of course, but they tend to be much warmer and much more 
focused on the woman in front of them or the person Mm. in front of them. And it's not that he was horrible. He just framed things in a way that was scary, unnecessarily so. I went to a midwifery appointment and I said that I thought perhaps he'd been moved, my baby had been moving less. But I also provided some context in that I'd been working from home for weeks ahead of time. And so I'd been very conscious of every movement that he was making because I was sitting by myself in a very Mm. quiet apartment. And then I'd returned to work and I'd been like going into the office. And so I'd been walking in each day surrounded by traffic and then on a train. So again, Mm. lots of noise, lots of movement. And then in a busy office setting. And so I went from being aware of every single movement he made to having lots of distractions around me. And I provided that context. I'd said this to the midwives and they quite rightly said, okay, well, that's obviously a cause for concern. We're going to put you on a CTG. That was all fine. But then I was lying there. I think I was probably no more than 10 weeks off Hmm. giving birth. And he said, well, it's too early for the baby to come yet. So if he's going to come today, if we have to do an emergency cesarean, you're going to have to go down to that major hospital that I was talking Hmm. about. And I just sat on a CTG for two hours that had shown that the baby was totally fine. Hmm. And so... I had, I had, and, and um, this is fairly unusual for me. I had a bit of a breakdown because I was sitting there with my stomach exposed, like skin to the air, on my own, and this man had come and stood over me and effectively mm. made it sound like I could be giving birth or not even be- having an emergency cesarean, mm. and I think around thirty weeks pregnancy, which is obviously very early. And in the end, everything was fine. But yeah, so anyway, that was that was a bit uncomfortable, but. Broadly speaking, throughout the pregnancy and then in the birth, my experience was really positive with the hospital. My waters broke early. What do they call it? Spontaneous release of waters without contractions, without active labour mm. or something. Um, and so there was a bit of pressure from the hospital over the next period to start an induction. There was a lot of conversations around how long they'd let me go mm. before starting an induction. And I'd effectively been told that happened kind of midnight Thursday, so Friday morning. I'd effectively been told that if nothing had happened by Sunday morning, so 48 hours later, they were doing an induction mm. no matter what. So again, it was the, the language was very much about this is what we need to do. And knowing what I know, as you know, because of my background in research, I know that's that's how they operate. And the the policies, the whole hospital policies are all based on averages. And being, understandably, but being very risk-averse, almost overly risk-averse, they take the tiny, tiny number of times that something has gone wrong and then extrapolate from that to apply it to every other person that fronts up. Anyway, but they they kind of started on their own um, on the Saturday evening. So I didn't need to to go to the hospital for an induction the next morning. Active labour started about 6pm and so I was getting in a car at 10pm in the middle of winter to drive half an hour, 35 35 minutes to the hospital, you know, sitting upright because you're in a car. Mm -hmm. Then bright lights once you get there, it's freezing cold even though we were just at the door getting from the car to the hospital and all the rest of it. And so although I then went in and managed to, to birth him without, you know, interventions... Uh, you know, like mechanical interventions or, or an episiotomy or anything like that, it was still very disrupted. Like, mm. and, and I know this now because of my second birth, which I'll, I'll go to in a second. But so, so the first one got to the hospital, there was meconium in the water when I got there. And so they put me up on an antibiotic drip, which I'd not wanted to do. I didn't mm. want his first experience of 
of the world um, to be antibiotics. And of course, you know, I understand the, the good um, bacteria that babies get by being birthed vaginally, that, that's kind of wiped a little mm. bit by antibiotics. And so I didn't want to kind of, you know, go through that experience only to have it not mm. necessarily have the, have not have all of the good, the positive things that could come from it. Anyway, so I had antibiotics and then gas and air. And I remember them saying, are you getting a lot of pressure in your back? Does it hurt in your back? And it just struck me as a really, like, and I understand why, because people have posterior labors mm. and it can indicate the baby's around, you know, in a suboptimal position. But it just struck me as an insane question because, like, I was pressure <laughs> from, like, the neck to my knees. <laughs> like, I couldn't, I couldn't tell them where the pressure was. It was all of me. Yeah. But, yeah, so he, he was then born at um, 5.40 the, the next morning after a pretty long two-hour two pushing stage. They were saying, that you know, they were going to have to you know, we're going to have to get someone someone in to help unless you can get him out now. And there was a bit of, um, he's not happy. He's he's not looking happy, Lisa. You've got to get him out now. Like I hadn't been pushing. Like you hadn't been trying. Yeah, for the last two oh, hours. And that was the other now. thing. I had a really bad chest infection. Mm. And so you're meant to breathe through the contractions and not hold your breath as you're bearing down, but you kind of have to. And so I couldn't I had to stop before the end of the contraction because I literally couldn't breathe because I had this chest infection. But yeah, so so two hours in into the pushing stage, he was born, thankfully, without that intervention. Although by the end, by that time, when they were saying, you know, we're going to have to get someone in, I was like, please, I need help here. Mm-hmm. Like, it's I'm aware that this has been a while. I am trying my hardest. You know, the fact that he's not here yet, he's not... Mm. I can't do more than I'm doing, basically. It's a lot um, of pressure when they, they're putting a time, like a, a clock on you. Yeah, and and that's the other thing. And this didn't happen with my second birth. I was vomiting constantly. And, like, towards the end, and this is really gross, but towards the end it was like brown bile because mm. I like there was nothing left in me and my body mm. was working so hard. And so I just I had, I had like, by the time he was born, I, I wasn't, like, falling down exhausted or anything, but I didn't have much left to give. Like, I was sick middle of winter, middle of the night, so I hadn't slept for, for almost 24 hours, mm. you know, because I would have woken up like 6 or 7 in the morning before. I was really well looked after by the midwives. They were clearly there for me and were trying to help me. And once he was born, every single one of them that was on the ward that day came around to say congratulations mm. and tell me how wonderfully I'd done, which, you know, after you've gone through an experience like that, I think you need that. You need someone saying, you know, not, oh, yeah, you've magically got a baby, but look how hard you mm. worked. And he's here, you know, like, so that was really wonderful. So he was born the Monday morning, was there Monday night, and I went home Tuesday evening, and I would have gone much earlier than that if I could have done. Mm. It's not that it's a horrible place, but a hospital is a hospital. It's not your home. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so that was that was the first birth. Like I said, I would describe it as largely positive. Um, there were some moments that were uncomfortable both during the birth and afterwards, but I was definitely cared for. And one of the researchers that I work with at my current university, Hannah Darlin, she says that birth trauma is whatever the woman tells you it is. Mm. And so from my perspective, I wouldn't describe that birth as traumatic. There were some things about it that weren't ideal or not what I'd hoped. And there were some responses or things said that I think aren't really ideal, but I was well looked after there wasn't really a whole bunch of coercion there. There was some pressure around it, but not a lot. And I think I came out of that 
pre pretty well. I healed up pretty quickly. I was amazed at how quickly I healed and how soon after his birth I I, I didn't feel like myself mm -hmm. at all, but how, how quickly I was able to be up and moving around. They were really, really good. Um, one of the midwives just kept putting him to the breast, like she kept putting him on me, even if he'd just fed. And I understand the importance of skin to skin and we'd done lots of that in, in that golden hour after birth and all the rest of it. And he wasn't taken away from me much at all to do anything. He was with me the whole time. But she kept putting him on me and I got to one point in that night, um, at like, you know, 2 a.m. The, the following morning, where it was hurting so much to breastfeed that my foot was involuntarily twitching. Mm. I mean, and thankfully, like, I, we then went on to have a really positive breastfeeding journey. It was two years just over. But that start was really uncomfortable. And I understand why she was doing what she was doing, but there wasn't, I think maybe because I was a first-time mum, there wasn't a lot of listening to, to how I was actually physically mm. feeling about it and... I, st I wanted to breastfeed him and stuff and yes they're on you and yes they're cluster feeding but it's not like he was demonstrably showing he wanted to cluster yeah. feed she was just doing it like he was my postpartum experience with him i think is was was pretty good um i did have across that maternity leave about three or four major breakdowns mm -hmm. <laughs> of just this is exhausting when you were discussing your recovery and mm -hmm. You're surprised at it being quick. You mentioned that you didn't feel like yourself. Can you talk more about how you feel you changed after your birth experience? So I think with that, it's le I mean, you do change. You absolutely change. And it's trial by fire. It's like being hit by a bus and then you're mm. a new person afterwards. But I'm, I think I meant more physically in the sense of owning your own body. With Theo, it took me nine months I think to really feel like I was fully in control fully owned my, my body again and I think that's because of you know you've got pregnancy where you're sharing your body with another person mm. like every second of every day and then there's birth where you you put your body on the line to bring that person into the world you know joyfully willingly but that's still what you're doing you are forcing your body to work at its absolute peak in order to birth your baby. And then because I chose to breastfeed and because that was something that was available to us and that I could do, and because Theo was just all about it, like he, he, he was a big fan of breastfeeding, you then have someone on you. Mm. Not every second of every day, but a lot. And so I think that that was a big change, but it also meant that until you know, he started really transitioning to eating solids more than he was having milk. Mm. Um, and until, you know, the feeds kind of dropped down a little bit. Yeah, I didn't feel that I wholly belonged to myself, that my body wholly belonged to me. Um, and I didn't, yeah, I just didn't feel like myself in my body until about nine months afterwards. And that's less about the healing. The physical healing from the birth was like six weeks. The other thing was the exercise. And that's something that I I've still haven't, managed to catch up on this time after birthing Eamon. I, I don't work out massively or anything, but I've noticed over the last few years, particularly since COVID, that doing something regularly, at least a few times a week, is really good for my mental health. And then after you birth a baby, whether it's vaginally or by cesarean, you can't for a while. Mm. You have to do really, not as little as possible, but you have to really be being gentle with your body. And so... At nine months postpartum with Theo, I was working out four or five times a week in the morning and I was feeling much stronger and I felt like 
my body had physically gained back some of the strength that it had lost through the pregnancy. And so that definitely contributed to it as well. Directly afterwards, your body is is still very much impacted by the fact that you've just been growing a whole human. Mm. (laughs) And so it takes a while for it to be in a place that you can even start moving it in, in kind of gentle, loving ways. And so that contributed to that sense, I think, of it taking quite a while to feel like I, I had full ownership of my body again. But yeah, the healing, the healing was in terms of, yeah, just healing from the birth. That was, that was pretty quick. I was like, you know, up and walking around like the next day, Mm. not entirely without pain, but you know, fine. And then within three or four days, any pain, any residual pain I'd had for the, from the birth was pretty much gone. Mm. You know, like I I was, and I think it's just because it was the first time, once you've done it a couple of times, you realize that that's how, that's how it happens. Mm. The human body works in such a way to recover pretty swiftly from a vaginal birth. But the first time you do it, I just remember (laughs) thinking like, what the hell? Like this, (laughs) I just did this crazy thing. Surely I need to be like laid up for Mm. like weeks now. Do you feel like your birth experience set the tone for your experience of motherhood or as an introduction to motherhood? Like I said, it was a largely positive experience for me. And I've got all of the things that they talk about with birth, that kind of immediate love and sense of connection. Mm. Like I had that kind of looking at his face going, oh, of course that was you in there. Hmm. felt like I'd known him all my life that I knew that that's who that baby was even though of course the second before <laughs> I saw his face I had no idea who's <laughs> <It was> coming <laughs> yeah who it was gonna, it was gonna be and I, I think Theo and I have always and same with Eamon because I had that I've had that connection with them the whole way through and I think for some people that's something that builds it can be a slow build and for other people like me it was this kind of immediate immediate thing my experience of early motherhood was certainly not negatively impacted mm. by the birth like I said I was I was really lucky in that I went to a hospital where I got to see midwives most of the time where those midwives were very caring and loving and invested in my well-being can you take us to your next birth experience that partner that I had throughout Theo's pregnancy he and I then split up when Theo was about four months old and he'd actually he flew a lot for work and he'd flown out when Theo was about three months old so I hadn't seen him for kind of the four weeks Theo and I hadn't seen him for the four weeks previous to that relationship breaking down but that meant that when I when Theo was maybe two maybe a little bit less than two and I started thinking about having a second baby I was doing it entirely on my own Mm. at that point. I still had one vial left. I did buy three more vials, which I then didn't need, (laughs) which is $5,000 of sperm that I (laughs) can't use, don't don't need to use. I've had to relinquish and you don't get a refund. (laughs) But yeah, so... So I had one vial left. I bought. I started the process of, of buying some more from the same donor. I thought initially that I'd only be able to use that, that final vial and then I might have to look for a new donor. But thankfully, he'd contributed some more around the time that I was looking to start again. Wouldn't um, it describe as premium or something like that? Yeah. Advertise. It's because they've got to, <laughs> it is. They're called premium vials. <laughs> and it's because they've got to be able to use them for IUI, which is... Like I said, it's effectively just putting the sperm where it needs to go. Mm. So they put it in the uterus rather than, as with IVF, taking 
the egg out, mm. putting it in a petri dish effectively, and putting the sperm right there, like next to it. Or ICSI, which is it's ICSI. I can't quite remember what it, it stands for, but it's effectively where they get a single sperm. They choose a sperm and inject it into the egg. Mm. So they take out all the choice, the the egg's power Na- to like natural. Yeah, the, na- the natural selection stuff. All of that <laughs> stuff is is done away with in order to produce an embryo in order to be used for IUI it has to be high quality because it has a otherwise it would have a significantly higher failure rate Mm. Um, but yeah so it's called premium premium (laughs) premium but yeah so I was able to go with the same donor I was this time doing it the whole process all on my own with a lot of familial support but I decided with my second birth that although I'd had a largely positive experience with the hospital because I I knew what birth was now and I knew that I could do it and that not that it it was easy because it really wasn't I guess because I knew what to expect and I knew how I could prepare for it and my preparation Mm. for the first birth all the research I'd I'd done was still obviously sitting there I still had that knowledge and birth time Mm. had come out and I'd watched birth time and research had come out that showed that for low-risk pregnancies birthing at home was actually safer than birthing in the hospital it had the same kind of physical safety measures or outcomes, I should say, as birthing in the hospital. But the psychological safety, mm. the emotional safety was increased when you birth at home. And I had the money this time because I hadn't just built a house, although mm. it was still still expensive. And so once I decided that I was going to have a second baby, and a big part of that was about giving Theo a sibling as well as wanting to have another baby of mm-hmm. my own. It was, I didn't, because I wasn't in a relationship at that point, I didn't want to be the only person in Theo's immediate family. I wanted him to have someone other than me. Mm-hmm. And so that went into my thinking about having a second baby as well. Anyway, so I'd, I'd made the decision to have a second baby. I was looking, I had the same donor. I didn't have to do all of the tests again. I'd started the process for having the insemination and everything. And I was really lucky. I've been really lucky with both. Some people do IUI and it takes a long time. Some people, you know, do a couple rounds of IUI. It doesn't work. They go straight to IVF and then that doesn't work. And so I was really lucky in that I've tried to get pregnant three times and I've gotten pregnant twice Mm. from those three, from those three times. So with Eamon, it was the first insemination I got pregnant from that. So I only had to do it once. That did then mean, like I said, that I've got three, I had three vials of... <laughs> of premium um, sperm just of, sitting around. Exactly. Just <laughs> going to waste. Um, and it's, yeah, there's all sorts of really interesting, like, legal and ethical implications around that as well, because that's someone else's DNA. Mm. And it remains the property or the, you know, the, the donor kind of has ownership of it. And there are legal limits to how many families any one person can donate to. But so I was pregnant and I decided this time that I wanted to look at a home birth. I knew we had some private midwives around. You'd been working with, with Joe, but also with Amy. Mm. Um, and so I knew I wanted a doula and private midwife combo. I could afford it. And so I decided to go for a home birth. So I approached Amy, who you'd been working with, and I then had a, a talk to a couple of midwives around the place. And one of them particularly, I felt that her view aligned with my own around this stuff. The way she operates is based in the research. She takes this kind of evidence-based approach, but she still has that really loving, kind of caring thing that a lot of midwives have. Her name's Ashley, she's fabulous. 
So I had Ashley and Amy as my support team going into the birth and throughout the pregnancy. And it, it is a massive privilege to be able to afford it because where, where we are at least, you can't do that through the public system. Some places in Australia, you can do it through the public system, but where we are, you can't. And so you have to pay for it. So I'm immensely privileged that I had the kind of disposable income in order to be able to pay for it because it was honestly, it was the best decision I made for that pregnancy and for that birth. There is no comparison between being in a hospital, giving birth and then after birth, even when you're really well supported and giving birth next to your bed and then immediately getting into your own bed and having all of your things around you. Um, Theo was able to come in you know, almost immediately after Eamon was born and meet his baby brother. So it wasn't, you know, if I'd been up at the hospital, it would have been hours later. Mm. And it wasn't. It was kind of once everything had calmed down, he straight away could come over. So it was a really positive experience. I don't think I had any negative experiences in my care at all in that birth. It was only, only positive. And that's down to the women that were supporting me. They were just totally wonderful. And Amy, particularly, because I wasn't in a relationship at that stage and I was doing it solely on my own, she was my support person. Mm. You know, she was not going to take the role of partner, but she was there as the doula and doing the things that doulas do around helping you prepare throughout the pregnancy and then for the birth and aftercare. But she was there to, to act as a support person as well as a doula. And so, you know, she was wonderful. All, all of our all of my um, antenatal appointments were at home. Ashley came here, which was really fabulous. Amy came here for the doula appointments. Um, so I didn't have to go anywhere apart from, you know, occasionally getting ultrasounds mm. and things. And the pregnancy itself, I've been very lucky with both my pregnancies. They were low risk, although it was uncomfortable because pregnancy is uncomfortable or can be, I should say. Some people apparently swan through it glowing the entire <laughs> yeah. time. Sparkles floating off them (laughs) pregnancy was not easy but easy you know it was low risk I had a little bit of nausea but not much at the start I then started getting some sciatic pain and so I went to see a women's physio nearby Joe, who is again totally fabulous we're very lucky there are a number of people around the place who, who specifically support women and birthing people and every single one of the ones that I dealt with was wonderful but once so once Joe once the the women's physio Joe helped me with the sciatic pain and the hip pain I was having it was then kind of no issue until I hit 20 weeks and the horrific acid reflux heartburn stuff that I get or got with both of my pregnancies kicked in Mm. and so the final 20 weeks I spent like living on quickies and big glasses of milk (laughs) and things to try and ease it avoiding garlic and onion and trying to avoid sugar but failing with with that (laughs) quite often so the pregnancy was kind of fine and then uh, he stayed in a little bit longer than Theo Theo was born at 39 and 5 weeks and Eamon was born at 40 weeks and one day but he for the final few weeks it's not his fault I shouldn't say he was doing it (laughs) he was very low and so I was getting for the final two weeks of my pregnancy really intense Braxton Hicks Mm. lasting good periods of time so there were a number of times where I thought oh you know this is the start of it and the, the the Braxton Hicks were in strength kind of severity not all that different to actual labor contractions and so there were yeah there were a number of times where I thought 
it's going to happen. This is happening now. And then it wasn't. And so then when it actually, when it came to the day, the the morning of the birth, it took me a long time (laughs) to realize that that's what was happening. I didn't think that I was really in labor till till maybe 10 o'clock. And then I thought, oh, it's still really early. It's fairly light. At one point at 11.30 a.m., I was over at mum's place showing her different yoga poses because her <laughs> back had been hurting her. And I was in active labor at that point. Like I'd, I'd been texting Amy saying, oh, look, I think probably something's happening. I'd been timing the contractions and they were getting fairly regular. And so because Amy and Ashley live about an hour away, I asked, I messaged Amy at about midday and said, yeah, no, I think you should probably come. Is probably, you know, mm. going to be coming today. That's because I came in and you were laying on the bed and I'm like, have you messaged Amy? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Probably so I said, yeah, sure. Like I'd been messaging her, but I'd been like, oh, I don't know, maybe. Like, don't rush down. It's probably fine. I don't know. Anyway, so I let her know at midday that she probably needed to come down. And we had a plan where Amy was going to come here because she's been at so many births, kind of evaluate where I was, where I was sitting. And then, you know, she would message or call Ashley to say, right, it's time to come down. And so she got here and, and she apparently texted Ashley saying, look, yeah, she's definitely in labor, but, you know, we've got hours, so we're fine. You know, you might want to start getting ready, but you don't need to rush down or anything. And then very quickly that changed. Um, so, so Ashley got here at one, Amy got here at one o'clock and Eamon was born at 1.43. And so the active, the kind of active labor where I was having to breathe through it and work through it was like maybe two hours. It was not very long at all. And the pushing stage was like less than five minutes. It was like two and a half contractions, basically. And he he was born. So he rushed into the world after two weeks of dithering. He <laughs> rushed. He rushed. Yeah. yeah. Which, um, which just is, you know, it's a bit indicative of his personality now, actually. He will do, do what he wants when he wants. In his own time. Yeah, absolutely. And how he wants to do it and under his own steam. Anyway, so he, so he got here very quickly. It, I don't want to say it was an easy birth, but I'm going to. It was an easy, <laughs> it was an easy birth. The contractions, only a couple were, were stronger than kind of period pain, mm. I would say. The pushing was not fun. But it was involuntary, like mm. my body just did it. And it wasn't the two hours like I'd had with Theo. I didn't have the chest infection that I had with Theo, so I could actually breathe the whole yeah. way through. I wasn't interrupted at all. I, I went into my bedroom at like 11 and I kind of came in and out a couple of times. But from then, I was just kind of in my room with the big ball, bouncing and rocking <laughs> and stuff. That was pretty amazing. <laughs> I walked in, I finished my class and came in to check on you. You were kneeling Mm. with the ball and banging on it. And I was like, have you messaged Ashley? (laughs) She probably should. And then you did message her, but you actually didn't. You messaged Amy again. Yeah, I did. (laughs) Because you were in labor. Yeah, yeah. So what I did was I messaged Amy, but then sent Ashley a screenshot of the the timing of the contractions <laughs> I'd been doing. So she didn't get any text from me at all. Not a good morning, not a hello, how you doing? None of that. I mean, and I was in labor, but whatever. All she got was this screenshot of contractions. Mm. And so she wrote back, looks like we're having a baby today. I was like, yep. And it was really funny. That, that banging on the ball is because I had my head pressed to it. And because it's a big ball mm. full of air, when I hit it, it was like the reverberation. It was like a form of pain relief, but the pain relief was just the sound, the distracting yeah. sound. Like you I didn't have the TENS machine yeah. on. 
Amy put the tense machine on me when I got to transition. <laughs> and so, at, you know, four minutes before it was born yeah, or something. It doesn't do anything. Yeah, just... I didn't, well, and I didn't need it by yeah. that point, really. Um, so it was, it was pretty amazing. It was pretty quick. And then I, like I said, I got to get straight into my bed. Theo got to come in really quickly afterwards. Um, both the midwives, Ash, Ashley turned up, I think, oh, maybe 40 minutes after he was born and about 20 minutes after he was born, um, her partner midwife, mm. Melanie, turned up. So... You know, we had the midwives here and then they kind of sorted everything out. Amy went around cleaning, um, which was wonderful. She cleaned the laundry, which, you know, hadn't been done for a while. <laughs> but she 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 looked after me that way and, and um, yeah, I just I got to get straight into my own bed and recuperate at home mm. without any kind of, you know, they, they weighed him, they do all the things that they need to do, mm. but without any of the, the kind of the constant interventions and things yeah. that you get at, at the hospital. Never taken far, which is what I was just like, yeah. she just gets to be at home with a baby. Yeah. So I was like, this is this is how it should be and this is what yeah. I want. Yeah, they should they should fund it. And like I said earlier, for low risk, the high risk pregnancies are obviously something different, but for low risk pregnancies... Physical safety is comparable with the hospital and psychological safety is increased. We've got research that shows that. So for low-risk pregnancies, it is safer Mm. in this country to give birth at home, you know? And that's not to say that the people in our hospital system aren't doing the very best they can, but they are within a system and that means that there are certain ways that they need to operate Mm. and, and policies. So physically, again, I was really lucky and I healed very quickly and there were no issues there. I was up cooking dinner like the next day, which is not ideal. I mean, if you can help it, like, you know, stay in bed, rest, don't do dinner. I was up being and being a mum again very quickly to both boys after Eamon was born. Yeah, so I I healed physically very quickly in both postpartum periods. I've been very lucky in that I have not suffered from postnatal depression or anxiety it's been really difficult and I had as I was saying earlier I had you know multiple breakdowns both times where you know you're just like sobbing on the kitchen floor because it's so hard and so unrelenting that newborn phase and it's even harder I think when you've got the two of them and you've got the competing demands there I think the sleep deprivation hit me harder the first time in the sense of how difficult it was to cope with but definitely it was still hard the second time and harder in the sense that it's lasted longer because Eamon's not as as deep a sleeper and not as I don't want to say good that sounds wrong but he doesn't sleep as long by himself as Theo did so both times you know the sleep deprivation was there I had those moments of meltdown complete and utter meltdown but for the most part my postpartums were pretty good but there were there's a couple of things about the postpartum experience I wanted to to talk to with Theo there were two things in the postpartum period that were pretty tricky one of them was that that relationship I'd been in for the years leading up to to my pregnancy with him and then throughout my pregnancy with him and the birth and everything that relationship ended when Theo was about four months old he'd actually my partner had been gone for about four weeks at that point because he he had had a trip planned for work and so he he went for that and so we hadn't seen each other since Theo was about three months old and then the relationship ended it was not at all what we'd planned obviously we'd both gone into it thinking that we were going to be together for a very long time but what worked when it was the two of us two independent people it didn't work when there were was a little person there and I found myself um, holding space or trying to hold space for the relationship and for my partner and then obviously um, caring for Theo and making sure that all his needs were met 
and you know it kind of distant fourth or fifth even there was me trying to hold space for me too and it just it just didn't work and you know thinking back over it now I think that uh, when you have children and this is from from my experience of this relationship but also kind of being witness to other relationships around me as well I think it can absolutely bring you together as a couple you know you face a challenge a hardship and you pull together and, and really become a team or you face a challenge and that challenge highlights some of the cracks that were already there in the relationship. And unfortunately, I think that's what happened, that relationship. So that, that ended when Theo was about four months old and it, it was difficult. I mean, all breakups, well, I would say very few breakups, I think, are, ha- are happy. Most of the time, someone is hurt. You know, most of the time, I think both of you are hurt. And so that was a bit tricky. It was probably, I have to say, the easiest breakup I've had Mm -hmm. in that I was very aware that I had Theo there and his needs didn't change from one day to the next you know I I could not afford to fall apart and because of the kind of person I am I think I I'm someone who likes busyness I, I need a bit of a challenge I need something to be focusing on and so that in terms of my coping with the breakup was very helpful. I had somebody else there, not only to give me comfort, and he definitely did. You know, there's nothing like holding a baby for, mm. for making your heart warm. But as, as well as that sort of comforting sense, I had someone who needed me, and I, so I could not afford to fall apart, and so I didn't. You know, most distracting distraction. Yeah. Ever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, biggest distraction ever, but I think probably most positive distraction mm. ever. You know, babies are very good at pulling you you out of yourself Mm. you can't be properly looking after a tiny person and being woe is me Mm. you know fainting all over the place um so that that was sad um obviously but also and it made that postpartum period a bit harder but the other thing I guess is it also showed me that I could do it on my own very very early on in my parenting journey and this probably feeds into me going in and having a second baby on my own eyes open wide open probably about how hard that was going to be is that I had to do it on my own from the time that Theo was three months old Mm. you know and yeah so I think it it definitely it made me aware of a strength that I already had Mm. so there was that so there was that piece in the postpartum that was a bit tricky harder than that though was the fact that Theo had to have a surgery when he was a few days shy of eight weeks old so when he was about four weeks Mum was changing his nappy one day and noticed that there was um, a bulge that, that hadn't been present before at the bottom of his abdominal wall, kind of just up from his thigh crease. And so I rang the doctors straight away and we, we got in straight away because it's a four-week-old baby. So obviously they were keen for someone to look at him. And that doctor that we saw that day is still his GP now and is, is Eamon's GP as well. And she's just completely wonderful. I think the kind of panicked version of myself that fronted up there, she was exactly who I needed <laughs> to see to reassure me that, that yes, there was something happening, but that it would be okay. She has that kind of manner. She's she's look. She's got um, I think four children now herself. So <laughs> she's she's good at coping. We'll say <laughs> very calming presence. So he had this he had this bulge, and the GP said that she suspected it was a hernia because of where it is. It's called an inguinal hernia, and it's just it's basically a little weakness at the bottom of the abdominal wall that means that a, a tiny hole forms and a bit of the intestine effectively pushes through. It can be very dangerous if the intestine gets caught in the hole and can't be pushed back through. 
that's called reducing the hernia. If the hernia can't be reduced, if it gets stuck through, then it's a, it becomes a strangulated hernia. And that can be very dangerous because the blood flow stops flowing to that piece of the bowel and it, the bowel can die very quickly. And so it can be a life-threatening issue um, for tiny people, obviously, but also for adults that have hernias. So we went to the doctor. She said, look, I think this is what it is. I think he's got an inguinal hernia. It'll be okay. Try to make sure you can keep pushing it through because if it, if it gets caught, then it's an issue. And then she sent us off to a pediatrician the following week. So at five weeks old, I took him to a pediatrician. He was a lovely man. And he said, yes, this is definitely what it is. It's an inguinal hernia. Now, he was not able to reduce the hernia at that appointment. I think looking back that probably he didn't want to be too rough with such a tiny baby, which, you know, fair enough. And so that same day was my first experience going to the children's hospital. When we got there, luckily the the nurse, you know, at the emergency, at the intake desk was able to reduce that hernia. So we knew it wasn't strangulated, which is great. And then we also, while we were there, had a surgical consult and... Theo was booked for surgery a few weeks or not even a two, two and a half weeks after that. It was good in the sense that we had an answer for what was happening, um, for, for what that lump was. And, you know, a, a hernia surgery is a low level surgery. It's a kind of, it's a bit of an everyday one, but that was a really tough time for me because I was just terrified. I felt that I'd just been given and it's very much I've always felt about my boys that they've been given to me that I'm exceedingly lucky to have them that there's the universe giving me a gift basically um, is how I feel about them both and so I felt like I'd just been given this wonderful little person and suddenly it felt like he was he was in danger because you know I, I didn't know how he was going to react to to being under general anesthetic I was going to have to hand my tiny baby over to someone who was going to look after him, but was also going to pump him through it full of drugs to knock him out and then cut him open, cut him open to fix something. And th- thank God we've got, we've got hospitals and a system that does that, that, that happens so quickly. You know, we found out at four weeks, confirmed at five weeks, surgery at seven. So that all happened really quickly, but it was the hardest thing I'd have to do by date, harder by far than the birth itself. You know, that was something I was doing, but having to give my baby, like literally hand him to a stranger, knowing that that's what was going to happen was really, really difficult. And I think probably my partner at the time, and I, I, want, I want to stress that he's a good, he's a good person. He's a lovely man, but he his response, I think, definitely fed into the breakdown of that relationship because he could not understand why I was so scared, you know? And he, we had a conversation. I distinctly remember him saying to me, what, what, are, you, what are you scared of? Like very kind of perplexed. And I just remember looking at him and thinking, what do you mean? What am I scared of? I said, I said I'm scared he's going to die. I've, I've just had this baby. He's seven weeks old. And he's going under general anaesthetic and being cut open. Like that's a lot for an adult body to bear, let alone a tiny person. So that was, Theo's surgery was definitely the hardest um, thing that I had to do or or not do because I didn't really do anything. The hardest thing I had to cope with in his postpartum. Something you had to carry though. Yeah, it was. And I mean, thinking back on it now, my feelings about it are helped massively by the fact that he's now a very tall, very energetic four-year-old mm. running around causing chaos everywhere he goes. 
So that that helps a lot. But, you know, I think until you have a baby, you don't really have a sense of, of how fragile life can be. And then immediately after having that realize, you know, you, you have the baby, you're like, oh my goodness, there's this tiny, tiny person. And then very soon after that, having to have that baby have surgery, it was, it was tough. So it was a couple of hours. And once I got him back, you know, I was very quickly happy or convinced that he was, he was going to be fine. But because he wasn't eight weeks old, we had to spend the night on the surgical unit just to make sure that he was, um, you know, reacting to the general anaesthetic well and, and, you know, there was no kind of nasty after effects. And that, um, I have to say, the recovery ward in the surgical wing of a children's hospital, it's the, it's the worst place I've ever been in my life. And not, not because of the staff there. The staff were incredible. They, you know... They are people who were invested and, and have trained to save children's lives, you know, mm. so totally, totally wonderful. But there's no escaping the fact that it is a place filled with unwell children. And it was heart-wrenching being there. And they weren't all tiny people. The boy in the bed next to Theo would have been, you know, 15 years old or something. He was he was bald. And so I, I suspect he was undergoing some kind of treatment for cancer of, of some kind. And I remember his mum looking at me with this real sympathy in her eyes. And, be, you know, this was after the surgery. And so I just remember, like, I smiled back at her. But I remember thinking, like, oh, no, don't. Mm. Don't save your sympathy for yourself. Don't don't send it my way. You know, me and my baby are leaving after today. You know, he had this little thing. It's now fixed. As long as he heals well from the surgery, we're fine. You know, my heart was sore for her and, and what she and her family and her son must have gone through for them to be in that place. And then overnight, down the hall, not in our, our room, but down the hall, there was a little girl who needed some something to happen. I don't know if she was having a needle or whatever, but the, the doctors came in and had to, had to do something. And she was calling out to her mum saying, you know, mummy, don't let them, don't let them. It was just awful, you know, and I... I'm so glad, obviously, that we have a system that supports us accessing people with those skills and, and that it's available to, to everyone because it was a public hospital that we were in. But that, I think that day and that single night were probably the worst things that have, that have made up my postpartum experience for sure. So those were the two kind of singular events that, that I remember from Theo's postpartum as being a bit tricky. Um, but overall, I think... My maternity leaves have been marked um, by this feeling. I describe it as my, my brain eating itself. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm someone that likes to be busy. My job and the job that I've had for the, the last um, kind of eight years or so has been is very deadline driven. And so I do like holidays. I like time off. But having eight months where you are kind of chained to your house a little bit because it's it's obviously hard to get out of the house with a newborn and harder still to get out of the house with a newborn and a three-year-old. And so I, I would find myself kind of stuck at home a bit and I would start like hyper fixating on how tidy or not the house was. And that's a little bit easier to deal with the first time around because it was a little bit easier to keep things tidy but you know when you've got a, a three-year-old that your house is not tidy ever Hurricane following you around yeah <laughs> yeah you know if the toys are packed up and the the clothes are everywhere if the clothes are folded then the dishes need washing it's an endless mm. cycle of parts of your house being clean on a good day parts of your house yeah. are clean on a bad day everything needs doing and there's no single space you can look at um, that's tidy and so both times I think while I didn't have 
postnatal anxiety or depression, I definitely am not someone that deals well having those big extended periods off work, which is a bit sad because I have to say going into the second one, I was really looking forward to that. I was like, yes, I don't have to work for like eight months. It's going to be brilliant. And obviously, you know, you do need the first few months to kind of just recover a bit. I'd love spending time with the boys, but also that is true. And also it is true that I, I missed having something else to do with my brain. I think I do, I've got, I've got a bit of an itchy brain. I need something, something to be really focusing on. And if I don't have something that is going to give me that intellectual focus, it starts to fixate on problems around the place that needs solving. And the housework was kind of an obvious example of that. And because I couldn't do it, it just became this quite difficult psychologically, emotionally thing to deal with. Both periods were marked by difficulty They've definitely been periods that I've had to kind of slowly claw my way out of. But I think that's what happens when you, you have a baby anyway, you know, like you, both times for me, it has been a slow coming back to myself. What has been the most challenging part of your motherhood journey? I think it's got to be the, the overwhelm that comes from sensory stuff. Um, I've never been someone that's had sensory issues although thinking back I don't I definitely you know avoid the you know Westfield at Christmas time like too many people yeah yeah (laughs) too many people around me um, yeah is it definitely stresses me out but I'm not I'm not someone that's ever had you know issues with too much sound or too much light or whatever I've never had that kind of real sensory overwhelm that some people have but children are nothing if not little balls of of overwhelming sensory input Mm. and definitely since having Eamon and now having two of them I've definitely gotten to a place where the sensory input just gets up and up and up and I can feel it's like I can feel the cortisol rise (laughs) in my body and so that I've found particularly challenging and and you know it's one of those things where I've had to find and develop strategies for coping with the overwhelm that comes from just too too much sensory information at any given point the kind of the constantly being on call stuff is tricky but I don't think I've found it as difficult you know I'm I'm someone that likes being busy so I think being busier is not Mm. has not hit me potentially the way it could have done or that's 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 not been as challenging as having to find ways to dial back down Mm. get back into kind of calm from just having way too much noise or or way too much physical physical touching you know and so I've, I've had to be like okay I'm feeling like this I need to go outside close the door and have some some cold air or mm. fresh air or something you know and I um I've had to develop language around that as well to try and talk to Theo about it it's not language he appreciates but I find myself <laughs> having to say things like I need some space for my body now I will give you a hug in a second but I need some space for my body now just this morning, he told me, I don't want you to have space in your body, <laughs> <laughs> which is a very four-year-old thing to say. But yeah, so I think, I think that's, that's what's been most challenging, learning that about myself and then finding ways to pull myself back into a place of, if, if not calm, then at least mm. functioning, <laughs> function, back into functional <laughs> from being totally overwhelmed in that way. I was going to ask about the transition from one to two, mm. like how you found that. Difficult. But 
the most difficult thing about it, I think, was um, the first three weeks, month, maybe two months, where I could see the massive impacts that having another little person was having on Theo. Mm. And I remember feeling intense, intense guilt and just repeating to myself over and over, I've I've blown up his little world. Mm. You know, he had this very comfortable little world for three years that was him and his mama and our extended family and, you know, that he had access to me almost any time that he, he needed, particularly because he is a COVID baby and I've spent most of the time since I went back to work, working from home. Mm. He had almost total access any time he wanted. And suddenly I couldn't give him a hug whenever he wanted or I had to be doing other things or he had mm. to be looked after by someone else because I was doing something with the baby. And I felt intensely guilty about that, even though a big part of the reason that I had a second baby was so that he would have a sibling. Mm. You know, I didn't want him to be totally on his own, you know, apart from me. I wanted him to have someone else that was, you know, a peer that was his, his immediate family. Um, So I, you know, it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't a rational feeling. It was just, oh my goodness, like, what have I done to this poor, Mm. poor kid? Even though I'm the mama, I've taken his mama away. That's (laughs) that's kind of what it felt like. And that kind of started to to calm down when he started to take on and and repeat back some of the language I'd given him about the baby. So, you know, I talked to him about Eamon being our family and how he was his baby brother and he was no one else's brother. He was his baby brother. And so when Theo started saying things to me like Eamon's our family or, you know, and, and that's mm. my baby brother and I love my baby brother and all that kind of stuff, that eased that feeling. Mm. And, and it, so it kind of it kind of dissipated. But that was probably beyond all of the, the kind of the competing calls for attention between a newborn and a, and a toddler and all of that stuff was really hard. But I think I found the guilt, that feeling of guilt, the most difficult part of going from one to two. Mm. Just trying to think about, I barely remember the time after Hugo was born. Well, you had a really difficult time mm. then. I know it impacted my life. I know that when I was had to go back to the hospital, or when I disappeared for a few days and then came home and then went back, I know his sleep was absolutely atrocious because it was Finny and trying to get him asleep. Mm. I think it seems to be with like Evie coming that they, my boys don't externally... Like you, like you followed mum around saying, take her back. <laughs> <laughs> Please, for the love of God, look, I maintain born. that that's a good position. <laughs> but they don't say things like that, but their, you know, their sleep gets dis- is disrupted or mm. they just, like when I'm feeding Evie, they go absolutely feral and start fighting and yeah. trying to injure themselves and each other. Yeah. But they don't externally say, like you hear lots of people, like they have trouble with the older kids being too rough with the baby and the boys love her a little bit too much. Yeah. So it's not so much a problem <laughs> as them being aggressive to her, but yeah, I don't remember. No, that well, anyway, it's a very difficult out. traumatic period there. So you probably you wouldn't be, you'd be hiding that away to protect yourself a bit. Mm. You know? Um, I mean, that just, that whole, that whole period sucked because I could see you going through it. And I remember looking at him going, but he's fine. Look at that baby. Like he's, he's mm. growing. He's doing all the things that they need to be doing. He looks like a perfectly healthy, yep. beautiful little capuchin baby. <laughs> and, and very confusing. Yeah. To, to just continue. Looking and we were right as well. well. He was fine. Yeah. 
Like, I mean, clearly he's now running around. He's a little, <laughs> a little, a little ruffian. <laughs> Very sweet, affectionate ruffian, but yes. yes. Yeah. He does love to thump people. <laughs> well, and himself included. Like, yes. <laughs> he's rough and tumble for sure, that baby. fella. And what has been one of the most rewarding parts of your motherhood journey? The best bit, the absolute best bit, my favourite part is learning who they are mm. and having that be this kind of slow process of unfolding. Like, I... I I'm not a religious person by any means and I kind of always just thought oh well it's it's nurture that's that's it and it wasn't until I had babies that went oh no no their personalities are there from the word (laughs) go and so you you kind of even when they're tiny you have a sense of who they are but then that just keeps continuing to yeah it just unfolds and you Mm -hmm. learn more and more about them as they get older and start to have the the language and the capacity to communicate with you because mm. Eamon has a has a handful of words but he's able to communicate very strongly <laughs> what he wants and what he does not want particularly um he's very good at he he hits people in the face and then points at the things <laughs> that he wants to draw their attention to it so I think learning who they are that's been the most rewarding thing and Theo now that he's I mean he's communication skills I think are particularly strong you know like mm. all kids once they get to to his age are kind of able to to talk or you know communicate mm. quite well but he the things he says I just and I've I, I've made a point of telling him this but I just love the way his mind works like mm. he he's very good at um building things kind of physically but he also he puts words together and I just think how how do you know that as a thing and I must have said it to him because the other day I I can't even remember what it was but I said something back to him and he said mama how do you know that (laughs) (laughs) so he was obviously very impressed with my communication (laughs) skills as well but yeah the the, that's that's my favorite getting to know my kids that's my favorite favorite bit and I I feel very privileged that that you know all things being equal will just continue that I'll get to know them more and more Mm. and more as they get older and seeing who they become that's kind of the bit that I'm most looking forward to Mm. like I I remember him as a little baby I'm not convinced that the little baby that I had and the little boy that's talking to me now is the same (laughs) I can't see how that could possibly have happened it was just yesterday he was tiny but you know this little kid now thinking of who he's going to be at 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 10 and then 15 and then 24 and I yeah he's just he's just such a wonderful person and I have very little to do with that a lot of that is just in him um but getting to see that is just amazing and it's the same same with Eamon you know he's obviously he's smaller and so or younger and so um you know I don't know him as well as I know Theo and I'm I'm but the things that makes him laugh (laughs) and Mm. um like he you know, we I took him to the shops yesterday and he's just pointing at all the things and we're so happy to be there and stuff and it's just mm. wonderful seeing them experience the world and, and just being being themselves and yeah, yeah. So I think that's that's definitely the most rewarding bit for me is learning who my kids are. What has surprised you most about motherhood? In one sense the whole thing is surprising. There's there's nothing else in the world or at least in my experience, I don't want to talk for other people, but in my experience, there's nothing in the world that compares to it. Mm. So all of it is surprising. Like you've, 
you've loved before, you've been in love before, you've worked hard before, you've been tired before. I mean, I remember when I was pregnant, I was complaining about being tired and there was this (laughs) older person in the office who, we didn't get on, let's just say that, I was not their biggest fan. And they said to me, oh, you're tired now, just you wait. And I I was like seven or eight months pregnant at this time. So I just remember thinking like, shut up, I'm (laughs) exhausted. And then, of course, the, Theo was here and I was like, yeah, no, okay. They did know what they were talking yeah. about. I didn't know what tired was before, which is really annoying. Yeah. It's not a helpful thing to say. <laughs> no. And I really didn't want, to, want them to be right. Like I was saying, I just feel incredibly lucky and grateful um, to have my boys and to be able to be their mother. And so I think I'd, I'd expected to love them. But I think the the absolute intensity, that, that sudden switch of, oh, yeah, no, I would die for you and kill for you. <laughs> um, you know, the, how, how swiftly that turns on, you know. Like I've, mm. I've, I've, I was, I'd been in love plenty. Of, I don't want to sound crazy, but I've been in love plenty of times before. But there's, you know, loving your parents, loving partners, nothing in that compares you for mm. loving your kids. It's a whole different ball game. So I think the intensity of the emotions. I think, and this is not as not as serious an answer, but how busy you are. Like I don't know what I did before I had children. <laughs> I know I worked hard, and I know I often felt tired at ha- because of how hard I was working. Mm. And I know that I was I felt busy some days, but I don't know what I did with my time because now it's like this. I'm on, not even from the second I wake up, while I'm asleep at the moment because they're both insisting on being in my bed. I'm I'm on while I'm asleep. I wake up, immediately need to start doing their things. Like I'll I'll be up for three hours and then I'll get a coffee, you know? Mm. Like it's, so I, and I fit huge amounts of stuff into each day. And so I think, yeah, so I think busyness, being busy, how busy you are, how much you need to do, uh, that is definitely surprising. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it becomes super normalized because I can't remember what I did either. I think I must have just watched a load of TV. It feels like, like an entire <laughs> lifetime ago. TV. Like, even now the idea of just being able to leave the house. Yeah, you just go to work and then you come home and yeah. do whatever you want. Do the laundry <laughs> when you weird. want to. Like, <laughs> choose to... what you want to eat for well, dinner and when. You don't have to worry about anyone squatting on the floor and pooping. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah. He's done twice now. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, there are uh, there are some lives I suspect where you do need to worry about someone <laughs> doing that. <laughs> yeah. Mm. But yeah. So I don't know the the busyness. I think is um is intense. Speaking of a former lifetime, what is something you do for yourself separate to mothering? The only thing that really like that I do frequently that comes to mind is work, mm. <laughs> and even that is not. It's not accurate to say that that's separate to mothering because a big reason that I've got the work that I do and that I'm as, as ambitious as I am in terms of wanting to, to move up in my career is because of my kids. Mm. Because of, of my situation being a sole parent um, by choice, I am solely responsible for our financial well-being. You know, if if I want my kids to have something, I, I need to find a way to pay for it and... Mm. So even work, I like, I love my job. I, I, you know, I love being involved in research and I I get to learn new things every day and I get to work with some of the most clever, wonderful people there are. And my team is fantastic. So there's lots of things to love about my work, but even that 
my desire to do it as well as I possibly can so I can move up more quickly so I can earn more money that's that's to do with Mm. needing enough to give my children the kind of lives that I want them to have to be able to to take them to Japan or something you know Mm. to to do all of that sort of stuff so although I definitely need I need it for my well-being a part of that is for my kids do you have clear boundaries between your working life and your mother life Mm -hmm. do you want those boundaries to be clear do they cross over how do you feel about them crossing over Mm -hmm. I don't think you can have clear boundaries I know for some people and I don't want to stereotype but I think for men it's very easy you well I want to say it's very easy it seems easy for some men to switch off their dad brains as soon as they go out the door and switch on their work brains and you know that's just how it is so they're themselves totally at work I'm working four days a week two days from home two days in the office and I do like going into the office because it gives me a little bit draws me out of the house but I am still mum when I'm there Mm. You know, I I miss the boys when I'm there. And and because of COVID, you know, obviously it did awful things around the world, but it meant that I've I've gotten to spend a lot more time working from home than I would have otherwise. And therefore I've been there to put them down for naps and and all the rest of it when I wouldn't have have been at home. If COVID hadn't happened, I'd be, be going into the office each day. I do find it difficult when home life, intrudes too much into work life and vice versa you know if I'm trying to cook dinner and write an email at 7 p.m like that's tense and I then get that same sort of feeling that I was describing with the postpartum thing where I I start you know kind of internally listing all the things that I've been that I need to do for work that I haven't done because you know other things needed to happen at home so I would say for me at least it would be nice to think that those boundaries could be there but I'm mum every second mm. of every day and they, you know, if I'm working, they're not the, the immediate focus of my thoughts. I'm concentrating on what I'm doing, but those boundaries, they're just not possible. And maybe when the boys are teenagers, that, that would be something that's possible. You know, they'll be at school and doing their own things. And so more of my focus will be on work. There won't be that kind of background noise, but certainly mm. when they're both so tiny. No, and I mean, even, even when I'm at work, I'm like checking in with mum even though I'm only out of the house for, you know, seven or eight hours at a time. So I don't, I don't know. I, I think the boundaries are a nice idea in theory, but in practice, I just don't think having boundaries between those two versions of myself would work. Do you feel any pressure to try to make sure that there are boundaries? The pressure I feel is about trying to make sure everything gets done. Everything gets done at home and everything gets done at work. Mm. I think... I don't believe in taking your full self to work. There's some stuff that is home stuff and should stay home stuff. However, if someone I'm friendly with at work asks me about the boys and I'm showing mm. them <laughs> the, the most recent photo of them doing the cute or crazy thing, yeah. you know, I try not I try not to overshare. You know, I don't share them on social media and things like that because I want them to have, you know, th- that becomes a choice for them. So I don't overshare about them. But I also, I'm not someone who like never talks about my children at work. I think there is a pressure on women. And in fact, there's a, there's a really great phrase about it that's women are expected to mother like they don't work and work like they, they're not mothers. Mm. And I think that's bullshit. <laughs> so I, I don't believe in taking my full self to work, but neither am I just going to be Lisa devoid of children and mm. any external stuff when I go into the office. Can you tell a difference between 
yourself as a worker before you had children versus after and do you feel like anyone in your workplaces because I know you changed at least once did their treatment of you change or did you notice anything like that yes there are absolute differences I cannot work as long as I did beforehand because I've got a deadline driven job before I had kids in the lead up there were often days where I would get into work very early or if I was working from home start work very early in the day and then go through until like 10 o'clock at night and that just doesn't happen anymore Mm. it's not possible Um, I do send more emails out of hours now than I used to because sometimes you know if if I need to go pick up Theo at 4.30 then that's a half hour that I'll need to make up at some other point so there's much more kind of chopping and changing and and fitting bits in I don't work as much. I'm not as work focused as I used to be. I'm I'm probably more ambitious than I used to be in terms of rising up. But I think I'm, you know what it is? I'm better at working smarter, not harder. I think what I used to do was just, and not, not crazily, but I used to be very work focused and I would work longer than I'm capable of working now. But now I try and make sure that my efforts, um, are, are in the highest priority areas, you know. So I do think I'm, I'm better at doing that now. And, um, you know, this, this kind of stereotype about women multitasking, I don't know how much I believe it, but motherhood in terms of the workplace, I don't sweat the small stuff as much as I used to. It's made me better in terms of feeling less stress around that, around mm. that stuff. Um, and I do think I'm, I'm better at multitasking. Because you, you have to be, as a, as a parent, you have to be able to hold kind of five or six different things happening at any one time. So so I think it's made me, I work less than I used to. I'm still doing the, the hours I need to do, obviously, but I work less than I used to, but I'm definitely, I think I'm probably more productive when I'm in there than I used to be. In terms of treatment, the only thing I've really noticed about that, my last workplace I got along with my team and my boss. My boss is really lovely. The team was mostly pretty good, but I was in a male-dominated team. For a, lo- for a long time there, I was the only woman. Um, and when I came back, I had my very lovely boss, after I'd been back for a while, tell me that he'd felt it had taken me six months to get back into the groove of things, which, again, I think is bullshit. I don't think that was true at all. What happened is that I was at home for an extended period of time and then I came back into a very highly competitive team and I had forgotten that I needed to wear my armour. That's, mm. that's what it was. I was used to having kind of work lease or being quite tough and being because I was in this male team, you know, it was this competitive hothouse kind of atmosphere. And I'd kind of forgotten that I needed that armour when I went back in. And so what he sensed was not me taking a while to get back up to speed because I was still doing the job and I was doing it as well, at least as well, I think, as I was doing it before I went on leave. What he sensed was me being more hurt by some of the behaviour of my colleagues, finding it harder to deal with the the competitive atmosphere. And it took me a while to get that armour back on. I am a very capable person. And if I even get a whiff of someone treating me like I'm not, then I tend to hone in on that and try very hard to immediately show them how wrong they are, <laughs> overload them with information and, and things like that. So I don't, <clears throat> I don't think anybody was treating me like I was less capable. And that's probably why I remember that comment from my boss. How did you respond to that? I think I like, just looked really surprised. Yes, yeah, I'd be like, rude? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? Because I, 
And like I said, I don't, I think it's because he was used to this uber confident version of myself that I had before. And it's not like I'm not confident when I'm not at work, but you know, I was in this, like I said, it's this hothouse environment. You have to exude that kind of very um, confident, competitive persona. And, and again, it was an all male team. And so, and those boys didn't pull any punches. And so I very early on went, screw it. I'm not pulling any punches either. But yeah, so it was, it was, it was definitely about putting that armor back on for me that first time. And the second time round, this time round, um, I haven't had any of that. And I think it's because this time I'm, I'm the manager. I've got a, I lead a team and two members of my team have kids themselves. And a third, one of the other members of the team has nieces that she's very involved in their lives and they're quite young. And so I've got three out of my four members of my team who know what it is to care for small children. Mm. And so they, you know, there's a lot more, there's, there's understanding there about what that entails and not in like, oh, she's, she's going to have to go away and, and you know, do things or th- seeing it as a weakness at all. They understand that actually there are elements of, of being a parent that can make you stronger and better. So I feel more support this time around for sure. But also I'm the boss lady, so (laughs) that helps. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If someone came to you saying that they wanted to be a solo parent and use a donor, what advice would you give them? You need the village. I knew I needed the village even with Theo. Even when I had a partner, we'd been together for years and I had assumed when I got pregnant that what I was doing was finding a way, although I used a donor, I was using a donor to find a way to have the things that I wanted from my life while still having that relationship. So it wasn't really until I was thinking about conceiving with Eamon that I, I fully kind of went, oh, okay, no, I'm, I'm doing the solo parent by choice or solo parent by choice thing now. So with Theo, we built where we did, we built this house here because I knew I was going to need the village even when I had a, a partner, mm-hmm. even when I was in that relationship. That relationship ended really when Theo was three months old because mm. he'd, he'd gone on a trip. So we didn't break up until Theo was four months old, but he'd been away for, by th- for three or four weeks by that point. So I, ne- I needed the village at that point because I was not only in the early stages of postpartum as a first-time mum, but I was then also dealing with a breakup. The advice that I would give to someone considering this is to make sure you have the village. If you're going to do this and if you can afford it, or if it's something that's open to you, I would say absolutely go for it. I think you need to be willing to be creative um, about how you get the things you want from life. Mm. I don't, I'm not someone who thinks, oh, it's fine. You just sit back and wait for what you want to come to you. I think you need to go out and get it and be Mm. open to it, not looking exactly the way you thought it was going to look. Mm. And, And I've always made decisions kind of, from that point of view and, and thinking through, right, what's going to make me the most happy. So absolutely go for it, but make no mistake about the fact that it is going to be very hard and that you will need lots of support around you. And I'm very lucky that we, you know, we both have a lot of family support very close by. And so I'm able to, to lean on people. So have the village, be willing to lean on the village and ask for help when you need it. And the other, the other bit of advice I would say is we've been sold what I think is actually a bit of a lie that you need this kind of mum, dad or equivalent. Mm. In, or, uh, you need a couple mm. to, to have a, a strong, healthy family life or to in order to raise children. And it's, it's just not 
true. Know that there are wonderful men out there who are fabulous partners and who are fabulous fathers and are very engaged and very active. But I also know that there are plenty of women where that's not their Mm. experience, where their partners are not picking up the slack and they end up in a situation where they have an adult child and their children, Mm. children. And so that part of it is, for me at least, has not been as hard as maybe I would have expected it to be ahead of being in this situation in that I I don't have someone to resent when (laughs) when the housework isn't done or, you know, like... yeah. It, it is difficult in the sense that I am solely responsible for everything around here. If, if I don't do it, then it doesn't get done mm-hmm. un- unless I have someone here helping me, which I do, I do have fairly frequently because I have that village. But equally, there's not another adult around here creating mess. Mm. You know, I, yes, I'm solely responsible, but that also means that I don't have to argue with someone about decisions that, that need to be made. Mm. I don't have to talk through parenting strategies I can go with what my gut is telling me and what I think is best for my child without having to convince another adult that that's how it should Mm. be and I also because of the way that I did this don't have to give my child to someone else you know like relationships end that's that's Mm. just a thing that happens um you know I mean our parents broke up and we Every second weekend, we were, we were at dad's house. Mm. And looking at that situation now, and it's true for lots of people, some parents, you know, it's split custody. It's 50-50. I can't imagine handing no. my child over to someone else for, for a full week. Mm-mm. Even if it was someone I trusted and knew had their best interest at heart. I'd lose my mind. Yeah. And I don't, I don't have to do that. Um, so I think advice that I would give, to, to circle back to the actual question <laughs> you asked... Advice that I would give is, um, number one, make sure you have a village. And I don't think it can just be friends. Um, I think, you know, if, if you're in a place where you've got the kind of family that you can lean on, I think that's really mm. helpful. Don't be scared of it not looking the way you thought it was going to look, of mm. it not being the kind of nuclear family we're taught it needs to be. And have faith in yourself that you'll work it out. Mm. You know, I I had hoped that I would be a good mother and I did all the things I thought that I needed to do to make that a possibility so I made sure I was living in a nice place that I had some financial stability and that I had support so I'd hope that 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 would kind of set me up to do it but I think I'm probably a better mum than I I thought I would be or that I'd hoped that I would be Mm. yeah just so so just have have faith that you'll work it out Mm. you know that and, and if you're parenting the child in front of you Hmm, not the child you you think you should have look at them and what they need you know yeah Yeah. but just so have faith that you'll work it out yeah i think because you're you're going to be surprised and you're going to be challenged Mm. in ways that you cannot prepare for or expect but i think it you kind of hinted towards before mentioned it's not like you're suddenly you have a child and suddenly you have these skills that you never had before they're just amplified yeah and you can be surprised by just how capable you are in situations you never thought you'd find yourself in absolutely how resilient or absolutely I think there's no there's no growth without being challenged first you can't grow by being comfortable Mm. you know something something has to shift you have to be given the opportunity to rise to the occasion in order to rise to the occasion so I think that's that's definitely it and I mean there's also and this is still something that I think about a lot if you are the primary parent of a child the structure of your brain changes Mm. 
the part of your brain that is kind of responsible for assessing threats if you're the primary carer of a newborn child grows by 25 percent, mm-hmm. and that is true of biological mothers who have carried that child and it's also true of um, men who are in a couple where one of them is the primary carer so being the primary carer for an infant changes your brain mm. so I, and I just think that's I think that's amazing um, obviously yeah. we've evolved for that to to be a thing but yeah so you you will you will grow that's just how it goes you will grow you will change and there will be moments or minutes or hours or days where you feel like you can't do it but you'll come out of those you know and sometimes it's just you can have it in the same day you can have these intense highs <laughs> of i am killing it yeah you know i I made them scrambled eggs on toast with the organic <laughs> eggs this morning and they ate it all. <laughs> Absolutely killing it. And then two hours later, you can be on the floor sobbing and <laughs> just thinking, oh my God, I'm getting it all wrong. Yeah. But yeah, you grow. You grow to fit the needs of the, the kids, I think. When you're talking about the early days or months with Theo and your relationship and all the different priorities you had you said maybe fifth to that was figuring out who you were in all of it Mm -hmm. do you feel like you have figured out who you are in all of it yes I think almost from the point in time where I I knew I was pregnant or where I was pregnant each time up until nine months to a year after they were born that that kind of period, that kind of eighteen months, it has been a period both time of coming back to myself, and of of finding who I am, as a mother of one or as a mother of two. So I think some of that would have been in there anyway, mm. even if I'd been in a relationship the whole time, or even if I'd been a sole parent by choice the whole time, I still would have had that slow process of learning who I am, or and then and then finding myself again. And I think, you know, it's, I don't think actually, I don't think it is finding myself again. I think it's finding out who the new version mm. of me is kind of a feeling of, okay, I, I knew who I was when I was just Theo's mum. Who am I now that I'm a mother of two? Mm. What things do I have time for? Not even what am I interested in? What things do I have time for? How am I going to structure my life? What things matter to me? Where are my priorities? So I think I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting there again now. It took longer this time for sure. Mm. I remember feeling when Theo was about a year old, maybe a little bit younger. Okay, I feel like myself again now. And I think I'm in that kind of transition period still a bit where I mostly feel like myself, but I'm still kind of recovering from the absolute bus crash that is, <laughs> that is um, immediate postpartum. Um, you know that video you sent me the other day of the hurricane <laughs> where it's like all these green trees and then yes! you go it's like, yeah. Yeah. Just like <laughs> come out, it's absolute devastation. <laughs> that's what it's, that's kind of what it's like, you know, like, I mean, yeah. So the, the day before, and this is something I have not been able to do since really, I'm only just being able to do it now. The day before Eamon was born that night, I was sitting in my bed with cushions all around me, watching a video on my phone with the lamp on and kind of went to bed under my own steam. And I distinctly remember that day, that night, 
I, I have almost not been able to do that since. <laughs> like be in my own room with the light on without a little person lying there kicking me or having to like turn my the light on my phone all the way down <laughs> so that it doesn't wake wake them up. Yeah. Just be sitting there doom scrolling in total darkness. <laughs> you know, but I think that's only starting to happen now because I'm starting to win back a little bit of privacy for myself. Like Eamon's now moved, they've moved into a room together and so I have my bedroom back sometimes <laughs> for a fraction of the for evening. A fraction of the evening before, um, yeah, one of the or both of them wakes up. Mm. But yeah, so I don't know. I think it's. I think it is about finding the new version of yourself and finding ways to to be comfortable with that. And I think that's probably. I mean, I'm still I'm still a new mum, really. You know, my eldest is four, mm. but I have a feeling that that's going to be an ongoing process the whole way through. Because what they need from you is different. So, you know, when they're teenagers, I might have more time for myself, but the intensity and the complexity of their needs will be different. Mm. So it won't be, please give me food. I can't feed myself. It'll be, you know, I'm having this really difficult emotional situation mm. at school or, or with friends rather, or um, some part of school isn't working for me and I'm feeling bad about myself and helping them navigate that. And that will require a different version of me than I am currently. I know there's that matrescence mm. word, the process of becoming a mother, just like, you know, you, mm. you become a woman through puberty or a man through puberty and things like that. I think it's a never ending process because what they need from you is different mm. and who you are in any given moment in response to that changes mm. too interesting to have this conversation with mum because the other day she said I asked her something and she said something like oh I can't give you my opinion on that or something like that like, as if, like yeah and I said um 34 years too late yeah. <laughs> like I'm used to asking your opinion yeah. now but also <laughs> like <laughs> 34 years of, of parenting would beg to differ <laughs> She's, I don't know I I, I think in terms of influences and impact on mothering, our mum has been an intensely positive experience. She did so many things right mm. with us. She was always present. There's not been, and this this is this is something that I I've gotten from mum that I've had myself that I want my kids to have. There has never been a second of my life where I ever felt that I wasn't loved. Mm. I've known I was loved by both both our parents every second of my life. And I hope that that's something that I can give my boys. I think it is. I think, you know, they're, they're well-loved little people. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but I think, you know, for all of mum's many faults, <laughs> she, she's a wonderful mother and she's mm. done a really good job of it. And so I, there's a lot in her example that I, that I want to follow. Yeah, mm -hmm. I've said that we're kind of the first in the line of women in our family that don't have to actively break cycles yeah, and undo any kind of trauma, whereas mum clearly has worked really, really hard yeah. to do that. Absolutely. That's, that's really true. And you know what? It's true on both sides. Like mm. dad has had to do that. Our grandparents had really horrible things happen to them, but also inflicted some really horrible stuff mm. on our parents and both of them have 
broken that cycle. I mean, you know, for a given value of broken, but they, I think given the circumstances that both of them were dealing with when they were kids and the, the examples that they were given, mm. um, it's incredible that we had as much stability as we had as kids, that we had as much love as we had, that they were as involved as they were. Yeah, you're right. We, we've not, we're not having to break any kind of cycle, you mm. know? And I think particularly as women, given there was three of us and then five, five of us, mm. I mean, I have the choices that I have. We, are, we all have, a, you know, advanced degrees. We've been able to do a whole bunch of stuff, travel the world, do all sorts of things that would have been unthinkable to our parents mm. when they were being brought up. Mm. Moving away from the examples that we've been given, there, there are some things that I will be doing differently to the way our <laughs> parents did it, but there's none of that kind of real mm. trauma to actively push through and, mm. and break through. Are there any influential texts like other podcasts, books, programs, social media accounts that you would recommend to our listeners? Yes. I tend to be a bit of a magpie with these things. I try and focus, like I said, I try and focus on the the child in front of me and parenting the child in front of me because I think you can get really easily too wrapped up in doing things the right way according Mm. to any given mode of parenting. But I really like some of the things involved in aware parenting and Lael Stone, she has an Instagram account that I follow, but she also, you know, has sessions and things that you can do. I haven't done any of the sessions, but I've listened to podcasts, the Aware Parenting podcast she was on. And, you know, Aware Parenting is all around letting your child experience the full spectrum of their emotions mm. and being responsive to it without trying to immediately fix how they're feeling, like allowing them to feel how they feel. The other person, it's all going to be social media. No, no, I've got some books as well, but um, I think she's Shug CM. She's American and I think like a child psychologist or something working at a, at a university. And so she, you know, if aware parenting kind of says, let your child feel their feelings, mm. she gives really good, no nonsense, practical advice that takes that into account, but also makes it realistic. And so, you know, I watched something of hers a little while back that was not just kind of, yes, let them feel their feelings, but then put it in a frame for them. So oh, your toy broke. Yeah, that's really disappointing. You would be feeling sad about that. I hear you. That's that's a kind of medium-sized bummer, you mm. know? Like, so giving them a framework so that they don't feel that the toy breaking is the same as someone dying mm. or whatever, you know, giving them, giving them practical tools as well. So she's mm. great with that. Mm. She's on TikTok too. She's on Instagram and TikTok. I, I, there was a whole lot of pregnancy stuff that I listened to around pregnancy and birth that was really, really helpful. Your Baby, Your Birth was a book I read that was really helpful. Mm. Um, it had birth stories in there, but it also you know, had lots of information and about different care options and things like that. Australian birth stories I listened to a lot when I was pregnant with both boys. I think with the parenting stuff, I tend to seek out less. Like there's some that I kind of come across, but I, like I said, because my focus is so much on watching them and trying to work out what support they need from me in any given moment. Mm. What advice would you give to someone who's about to become a mother? Trust yourself. Absolutely. Um, trust that you will grow into the person that you need to be for your kids. I would say motherhood for me, it is both the best and the hardest thing I have ever done in my life. There is nothing that brings me more joy than being with my boys and also 
there is nothing sometimes <laughs> that is harder for me yeah. than being with my boys. When it's 2am and they're screaming at me, <laughs> um, that is incredibly difficult. But advice, trust yourself, know that you'll grow into who you need to be and that you will have highest of highs and lowest of lows and that will probably be on the same day. There is nothing more rewarding. You know, I've, I've been really lucky in my life. I've done some things that I'm really proud of. I've, I've traveled, you know, I, I got the PhD and obviously I'm very proud of those as kind of accomplishments in themselves. Obviously I'm a person outside of them, but my boys are the thing that give my life meaning. They're, mm. they're the thing that I value most, not, not them themselves, the relationship, the, mm. it's the thing that I'm most grateful for. It's the most wonderful thing I've ever done. I don't want to. I don't want to rush through it at all. But I also can't wait for the rest of it. Hmm. I can't wait to learn. Like I was saying, to learn who they are, to learn more about who they are, hmm. and to see them grow. Thank you for coming on and sharing everything you've shared with us and being so honest. You're very welcome. I'm, I'm glad to. I hope. I hope it's helpful. I hope that if someone is thinking about taking this journey themselves, whether they're doing it on their own or or just looking to conceive with a partner that that it's helpful to them or just somebody who's already going through it mm. which is the point the whole point yeah it and is the, the, want, it is the want point. people to say me too yeah <laughs> you're not the only one yeah i hear <laughs> you want to be able to hear that <laughs> this shit is hard yeah <laughs> <laughs> i the one the question i changed was what would you tell your maiden self I'm using the like, you know. But what did you made in mother yourself before? When you do you think you switched to a crone from a mother? Let's ask mum. Probably. I was gonna tell her you said that. <laughs> I'm gonna put it in. Yeah, yeah leave it in. Send it to mum. This is gonna be a bitch to edit, by the way. You've been listening to the Motherwhelm where we celebrate honest, unfiltered stories of motherhood. If today's episode resonated with you, I would love for you to join our community over on Instagram under the handle at the.motherwhelm. This is where you can find updates and behind-the-scenes content and share your own unique journey using the hashtag MotherwellMoments. To keep these powerful conversations going, please rate, review and subscribe wherever you find podcasts. And don't forget to share the show with fellow mums who might find solace, laughter or inspiration in these stories. Until next time, you'll be listening to the Mow Wow. Perfect. Beautiful job. Thank you, my darling.